you so much to everyone who is joining us today on our storytelling journey. A special thank you to all the patrons that are helping support us in continuing to build our dream. If you'd like to join them, please head over to patreon.com slash mocopress and become a patron today. Thanks. Hello and welcome. I'm Robin Childs. I'm Corey Childs. And I'm Matt Parker. Together we form the Moco Expedition, three good friends exploring the mysteries of storytelling craft. You may be familiar with Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling. As part of an ongoing series, every other episode we'll be exploring one of these 22 rules. You'll hear our connections, objections, exceptions, examples, and things you might not have considered when you first sat down to apply these principles. On today's episode, Pixar rule number nine. When you're stuck, make a list of what wouldn't happen next. Lots of times, the material to get you unstuck will show up. So grab your writing notebook, put on your best adventurer's cap, and welcome to the MoCo Expedition. So this topic we have already attempted to record once, and it was a very, very difficult Pixar rule. It stumped us a bit. And a lot of it was just us bickering over semantics and interpretation because part of the problem with this rule is that it is not a very clearly worded or presented rule and as a result is very prone to interpretation. So we had this great big long bickery discussion and I guess the computer made a commentary on it because it immediately ate it right after we attempted recording it. And so we are back again, but this time wiser, stronger, better, hopefully. Uh, faster. Faster. <laughs> we are made of six million dollars or billion dollars. How many dollars it is that makes people good. Uh, and we're going to try and take a different take on it. What we're going to talk to you about is, in part, the different ways that the rule was interpreted. And then we're going to try and, instead of think of examples for it, we're going to actually do an activity to sort of show you in real time how this rule could theoretically be applied in a creative project. So how about you guys share your interpretations of this rule that you originally had? Looking at this rule, I was first, uh, I, I was interpreting it very literally inside the story. Literally, if you know you you are stuck with your character and where to go, what start listing things that absolutely could not happen, and then start narrowing it down until you start getting to the things that could happen, and then you have then you know where your boundaries are and what what are the possibilities. And using that, you can say, okay, these, these 10 things wouldn't happen because they don't make sense or because uh, they're impossible with the, the scenario that I set up. These four things could happen. And of these, this is the most likely. And then you know where to go. Whereas my interpretation of it was if you are limiting yourself and that's part of the reason that you're struggling, 
going through an activity where you go, okay, what's off the wall crazy could not possibly happen, and you just start really letting yourself be as creative and loony and uh, free-flowing with it as possible, that that can free the mind of all these possibly false restrictions that may have been put in place and allow you to look at something and go, huh, you know, why can't that happen? I know I said that it wouldn't, but maybe if I apply that idea, that will get me a new creative way to resolve the problems that I've been stuck in. So I t interpreted it, it uh, the complete opposite direction as an exercise for uh, getting creativity flowing again. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, uh, it was weird. I kind of split the difference. I think uh, philosophically, I'm closer to Robin's side where it's free yourself from the limitations that you might have imposed on yourself for whatever reason. But ultimately, I think my takeaway was the idea that anything that can kind of uh, create and jumpstart those uh, creative juices is has value. So uh, kind of running through this exercise, um, regardless of how you do it, um, regardless of how the rule is worded, has value because uh, anything anything that can get you out of a rut or uh, it, I, I kind of approached it in sort of a meta way where I felt like um, like the rule uh, I think we mentioned this in our in our att previous attempt that the rule almost kind of refers to itself where uh, when we say, well, what can't happen and how can, we, how can we interpret the rules that Pixar has laid out and what can't be a Pixar rule and um, ultimately uh, what, what, uh, how does that get us to how we, how we can and cannot write. So I guess I went to a very deeply philosophical place with this one, uh, but, but that one's not super useful for, for helping people learn how to write. So good for intellectual discussion, bad for actual takeaway and apply as a writer. So you can see how vastly different those those three different perspectives are on that particular rule. And that was sort of what yielded a, dif a great difficulty in finding examples um, because which which version of interpretation do you do you treat? as the baseline to find an example. So the next logical thought was, well, why don't we make our own examples? So the challenge is this. Often in film or movies or stories, people will do a reimagining of an existing story. So there's already sort of an unspoken idea of what can happen and can't happen. A Tale as old as time approach is to take a fairy tale and reimagine that. Everything from Disney to uh, Grimm has done this. So the fairy tale that was the first of mine for me was Little Red Riding Hood. What we're going to do is that one of us is going to do a reimagining of it for TV, one for film, and one for a either novelization or children's story. What we're going to do is take our personal imagining of what this rule means 
and use it as a framework to brainstorm how we would do our interpretation or reimagining and then present a concept of what that would look like for our particular media. The way we broke this out was Corey chose TV, Matt chose movie, and I got novelization or children's series. We took some time to each think about what wouldn't happen and what we would do. Here's the results. Alright, so um, I'll just kind of walk you through my process before I do my pitch. Um, so I was tasked with creating a reimagining for Red Riding Hood as a television series. With that in mind, I had an eye specifically on stability, like repeatability and formula for the show. So if I have to have a sustainable show and I can't, you know, have it only be two episodes, uh, what can't I do? Well, uh, I can't resolve the story immediately. So um, from that, that means I can't kill the wolf immediately. I can't uh, even really get too far into the story immediately unless I want to do kind of something afterward, which is something I actually kind of ended up doing. Um, uh, I can't have the main character be the villain in as much as Red Riding Hood is either evil or we're doing everything from the perspective of the wolf. Um, I can't have the main character wear a lot of colors that aren't red in order to have this recognizable. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, and I can't kill off the main character in the first episode. <laughs> so um, what this actually did for me is it really got me thinking about what themes are present in Red Riding Hood. And the two that I really kind of hit on were um, identity, because the wolf is replacing somebody, and um, she doesn't know for a while. And uh, so, so who are we? And are we replaceable? Can can we be replaced to an extent where we could fool the people closest to us? And uh, security is the other one. Uh, how safe is your home? How safe is it to walk down the street um, and just visit your grandmother? So uh, from that, <laughs> I ended up with a post-9-11 gritty spy thriller. Okay. You ready for this? <laughs> I'm ready for this. I'm interested to see where this goes. Okay. Are you safe? How far would you go for your security? On September 11th, her mother died in the Pentagon. Red eventually joins the CIA with an eye on counterintelligence in order to prevent the same kind of attack that killed her mother. She has worked for years to overcome the be uh, to become the best at ferreting out spies. No one can get past her. But one day, she's fooled. The enemy has created some new technology that allows them to become indistinguishable from their targets. Her partner has been replaced, and she doesn't know until it's too late. An attack happens. Many of her colleagues are killed. Her whole worldview is challenged. She's the woman who could see through any disguise, but now the rules have been changed. Overwhelmed with guilt and paranoid that anyone around her could be the enemy, she has to adapt and play a guessing game about who she can and can't trust. Now she sees enemies anywhere. They could be anyone. When the enemy can blend in... Do you wait for a woodsman, or do you get an axe? This fall on Fox, discover the future of the spy thriller. Don't miss the premiere of Threat Level Red with special guest Nickelback. <laughs> That's special, really cool, though. Special guest Nickelback? Guest star. I don't know. <laughs> um, and sadly, of course, since it is on Fox, we'll never get answers to any of those questions because it'll be canceled after three episodes. Or it'll be like Lost, and you'll never get answers to them anyway. 
Yeah, after six seasons in a movie. Um. <laughs> so how much uh, of what you decided to do followed what you the restrictions that you put in and how many of the restrictions did you break? Um, so yeah, looking at what I've got on here, uh, one is resolve the story immediately. So my first thought is, is, um, if we're talking about the bit where, uh, the wolf is being this enemy spy replaces somebody close to her. And that's, that story resolves in the first episode. Um, so I'd kind of have it be, I guess how like fringe premiered where they were, you know, Oh, it turns out your partner's been the bad guy the whole time fringe, uh, spoiler by the way, for the first episode of fringe. Um, but uh, so I guess from that one, uh, when I was talking, when I was thinking to myself, resolve the story, um, there were two ways that could go. I could either set the story after the uh, fairy tale we all know, which is kind of where I was going with the idea that her mother had been killed on 9-11. Um, and uh, simultaneously, this bit where someone close to her had been replaced, in which case I'm resolving that immediately in the first episode. So I immediately broke that one. Um, the bit about what the main character reads and uh, wears and how they're uh, characterized is not uh, important because that's completely aesthetic. Um, have the main character die in the first episode? I adhered to that, so that one's not been broken. And um, whether or not the main character is a villain, it really depends on your worldview. <laughs> so, so you kind of played with some, um, yeah. but kept a lot of the others intact. Right. Well, and ju just because you're, uh, you know, breaking out of what you think you can and can't do doesn't mean that you should break out of everything you can't do. Sometimes there's a very good reason to not upset the apple cart, if you will. So, anyway. So that's, that's in that's TV. Smart. What about movies, Matt? What did you come up with? Well, so for a movie I went with, my thought was that the first thing that I decided I couldn't do was actually just make Red Riding Hood because a, a straight retelling of Red Riding Hood is, has been done uh, just a lot, a lot, a lot. And so like, yeah, like I said, the first thing that I decided was I can't just retell Red Riding Hood. From there, I decided that I wanted to get into what was the, a common modern interpretation of what Red Riding Hood represents, which is the dangers of adolescence and kind of burgeoning adulthood. And so the the idea is that it is and this is this is more of like David Fincher kind of needs to direct this. Because <laughs> and I like I said, I have a I only have a very abstract idea of it but it's a red riding hood where there is no wolf and there is no one wolf analog where th through imagery and symbology they're tied into that kind of lupine look and feel but that the wolf itself is the adult world and the dangers of it, of, of chemicals and substances and bad decisions and an ab abandoning um, kind of the, the dreams 
of childhood. And so some of the things that I said for this very early on, for this more kind of uh, abstract modern Red Riding Hood was what, there can't be an actual wolf. The imagery can't be meaningless, but it can't also be too trite or cutesy. It, you know, the thing with the, the first thing that sprang to mind was wolf brand cigarettes. And I immediately said, nope, it can't be that because that's too on the nose. I also decided that contrary to Corey, I can't have the main character too much in red. Because that falls again into two on the nose for something that's more quasi allegorical. Well, and red and can so be she... used transitionally too. You could you could yeah. change the concentration of red depending on how you were playing with this this theme of of getting lost in adolescence almost. Right, and so that there there needs to be something red thematically with her but not and and almost at all times but not a hundred a hundred percent all in red and so it's a it's a coming of age story about a young woman that gets caught up in now that I'm thinking about it, it's kind of the story of the chick from Forrest Gump, which instantly makes me hate it. But, <laughs> but where the focus is on her as opposed to Forrest. Right. Forrest doesn't actually exist in it, but kind of that, you know, well-intentioned, big dreams, um ultimately ending up with difficulty and having to overcome the, the, the escaping from the wolf is the overcoming of those negative adult situations and consequences and remembering the dreams and the the innocence of childhood. Well, speaking of childhood, um, mine was novelization or children's book. So I'm going to grab that segue and I'm going to wrangle it over. Um, for mine, I was thinking, I originally had this image of, of uh, two Red Riding Hoods. So, I mean, the, the classic story is very much, there's the Huntsman, there's Granny, there's the Little Red Riding Hood, and so my all my wouldn'ts uh, were things like, there's more than one wolf, there's more than one Red Riding Hood, the Huntsman doesn't show up, um, so that's a deviation from its, the classic story, uh, the deviation in terms of location, so it takes place in a location other than a wood, like space, or the Wild West, or deep in some spooky cave. Um, that you mentioned space because that was my other thought is instead of spies, it could have been alien replacement people, pod people. Awesome. I like that anyway, one better. <laughs> I like, but I like alien replacements. So 
my thought once I'd gotten through all those things was I like all of those. Let's do all of those. Um, so my concept is a Little Red Riding Hood adventure series. The Red Hoods is an organization of adventuring world traveling girls. Their mission is to bring help to people all over the globe, right wrongs, and battle the nefarious bad wolves. The Red Hoods are directed by Granny, who is a crackerjack old lady with a sharp wit and makes a mean batch of cookies. Sometimes the Red Hoods must also team up with or face off against the Huntsmen, a mysterious group of boys who have their own agenda different from the Red Hoods or the Bad Wolves. So it would be an, a, sheer, a series of short illustrated chapter books, and each one would feature a different girl. So that would give it kind of an opportunity to have a diverse cast because you'd have lots of different girls. You could have them from anywhere in the world. Um, and each book would focus on one of their adventures in a different location. So that was my, my concept. Yeah. I think it's kind of a special that, uh, like I ended up with something very close to, um, uh, 24 or something like that. And then I, I feel like, uh, uh, Matt, you kind of went more for like a character piece. And then I feel like Robin, you've got kind of a uh, 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 kind of half Nancy Drew, half uh, uh, kind of '50s serial. Yeah, it, it has a bit of that feeling. I guess it's probably influenced by the fact that I've gone through all the library books for the kids at the, the school I work for and seeing the different series, um, and how frustrating it is to me that there aren't there is in in the entire library we have exactly one book that has a girl having an adventure, like Indiana Jones-style globe-trotting adventure. There's tons of boys' books doing that, and there's lots of girls' books where they interact with fairies in some way, or magical moon princesses in some way, but there's nothing where it's just like, we are going on an adventure, and we're going to right wrongs, and do cool things, and it's going to be awesome. Um, so I think that's probably influencing my thought process on it, and also just the lack of um, people of color on the cover of any book, mm -hmm. um, unless it's like a historical fiction book, and then it's like, meet this person from slavery in America. Like that, that's, that's the only time that people of color show up, and that's really discouraging to me. So to have a series where it was built in that you'd have people of different um, ethnicities or backgrounds and you had no real excuse anymore for it only to be just the little, you know, little white girl. <laughs> it just, I don't know, that, that matters to me and I, I would like to build that into anything that I would do for kids. Hmm. Cool. All right, so would we say success on this exercise? I can see its value now a little bit more. Because um, the how fast the idea came to me was pretty rapid. Like, I made a list of things that was like, well, I can't do this. And then by the end of four, I was like, I like all of these, cra cram them together, make something. So I was expecting you to have some sort of space cave. I think that that would be like the spin-off series would be the Red Hoods in space. I think that would be uh, nice. Red Hood. 
3,000. Exactly. Hey! Then you could have <laughs> aliens in the cast, too. Awesome. I'm now picturing a lizard creature, little girl, in a red hood. So hell awesome. yes. I'd read the hell out of that. I need to make these books. <laughs> yes. That was my thought, was you have to, uh... You have to write these now. Yep. From my perspective, yeah. It, it, the ideas came fast. And, I mean, usually I'll have an eye on theme when I'm trying to do something. Um, maybe maybe it was just because this was a reimagining, if it had been, like, try something from scratch. But I think the reimagining thing works really, really well with this rule. And um, as a result, I think kind of anything where you've got uh, a mythos in your head, if it's a project you've been working on for a while and you think, man... I'm I'm just having a real hard time. I'm blocked. I know so much about this world. I have all these rules that I can't break. This is a really, really good rule for circumventing that. I do find it interesting, too, how both you and Matt, when you made your list of things you couldn't do, what it did is it's your brain immediately started going, okay, I've got all these things I can't do. Let's strip it down to what it really means. Mm-hmm. Um, because both of you started looking at thematically what is the purpose and point of this story. It could so, be that's also just how I've trained myself to write. Could be. Now, now that I've well, seen and the I will, theme. My thought process went, here's what I'm thinking, and here is what I can't do because they will detract from that goal. I didn't think, Here, here's what I can't do, oh, well, then it has to be this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I was just reading reading into that incorrectly backwards. But but I think for a lot of people, well, for, for, for certain kinds of writers that it would lead you down that path and that there is still value in sitting there and going, whether you're using it from the start of, okay, I've got to tell Red Riding Hood or I want to tell Red Riding Hood what can't I do there is uh or you're saying okay I want to tell you know an allegorical modern Red Riding Hood what can't I do I I will admit that I have seen more of the value of this process even if you're doing it on a more instinctual level like I think Corey and I do a lot um, I, I am seeing a value to this process because I'm not sure I've said it while we're recording for the episode. I really did not like this rule to start with. I guess uh, the other thing I'm curious because you asked me, Robin, um, Matt, what what rule do you or uh, what what rules did you think that what things did you think that you couldn't do that you ended up keeping and which ones did you break? See, and I think that I, going through it, the things that I thought I couldn't do I kept because it's still a very it's more serious in tone it's not cutesy there are no little in jokes there's no little you know there's there's in my vision of this there's never a moment when she uh casts a, a glance at the camera it's all so those things that I kept, the, the visual, she can't be in all red, but she has to have something of red, whether it's a piece of garment or it's her hair. Um, there can't be an actual wolf, but there can be, you know, kind of wolfish features. 
I think that because of how I went about it, because I sat down and I said, this is what I picture for this movie. What can't I do? I ended up sticking to those things. Whereas if you come into it from the front end, I think you will have more things where you go, well, no, I guess I could do that. Hmm. Well, that tracks because that's how you kind of interpreted the rule in the first place. So, cool. So I do find it really interesting that though we were talking about how this rule is not very useful because of how vaguely worded it is, it, Corey, I think in the end you might have been right all along, is that the exercise itself has value no matter who you are. You just have to follow the interpretation that you're following. Because yeah. it has value for me the way I've interpreted it, the same way that it has value for Matt the way he's interpreted it, and those are completely different and yield completely different things. Maybe it shapes itself to whatever the other person needs the most, because... I know when I get stuck, it's usually because I have made a list of things I, on how the world works, and I can't get out of it. So that, that's how I, I think, interpret this rule. Yeah, yeah, that's. I guess that is what I was trying to express, and I think I expressed it very poorly earlier. But this rule is a bit of a chameleon. It can be interpreted in a number of different ways, and if somebody does it differently than you do, that's okay. As long as you do it in the way that's good for yourself, I think this rule is good. <laughs> It's just, you're not going to be able to tell somebody else how to do it your way. It's very Frank Sinatra that way. We've covered this rule, and we have explored it through a different means than usual, through the activity. So since we're already in a creative uh, mood, I think we're going to transition into our prompts and writing exercises. And this week, since we've done something different with the activity, we're going to skip inspirations. We're going to try and mix it up in general a little bit on the MoCo Expedition, because doing the same thing every time, not always necessarily the best thing to do. So without further ado, Matt, how about you introduce our topic? The prompt that came out of the episode that got swallowed by space and time was someone discovering that they have the most specific the most absurdly specific mutant power of all time. Join us in facing down this spontaneous prompt. Take a moment to pause the recording, put about 10 to 15 minutes on the clock, and write the best short scene, blurb, opening sequence, whatever strikes your fancy that you can. If you'd like us to share them on the air, please send it to info at mocopress.com, or you can always comment at the MocoPress website for this episode. Gabby Griswold shivered under the bright fluorescent lights in the austere medical examination room. It wasn't every day that you found out that you were a freak, but once you did, it seemed like they would never let you forget about it. Mutation resulting from superhuman ability was first discovered in 1973, when certain humans with inexplicable powers began fighting crime in colorful costumes. The government put a quick stop to that. Within a year, the scientific community had discovered a way to detect genetic anomalies. It was easier than they thought. One genetic marker, always at the same chromosome, could be flagged with a simple blood test. What was harder was determining what powers the mutants would develop. Since the 1970s, the standard mutation test battery had grown to include 427 separate tests to determine what kind of power the subject had inherited. Completing the battery took two weeks. Still, 
Even with this exhaustive study, only 27% of people with the metagene ever discovered what their powers truly were. For Gabby, it was day 14 of her SMBT testing. She had been poked, prodded, cut, spooked, and subject to open flame and zero gravity, and that had just been today. Still, no superpowers. It was beginning to look like she would spend the rest of her life knowing she was special, but cursed to never truly know how or what she could have been. She would be judged, harassed, maybe even mocked for her differences without ever knowing what they really were. All right, intern Tommy said. Protocol insisted that SMTBs were to be administered by a licensed doctor and a federal marshal, but with recent budget cuts, they had been forced to rely on college volunteers, like Tommy. It showed. Just one more test, Tommy uh, continued. Behind the safety glasses and surgical mask, he was all eyes and pimples. With very little ceremony, he produced a revolver and fired it into Gabby's face. The sound was deafening. Her mouth had only been uh, slightly open, and burnt sulfur coated her tongue in the inside of her nostrils. Oddly, it was the flash that triggered last. Gabby opened her eyes. Tommy looked down at the gun with a frown, and as if it had misfired. Gabby was stunned. You shot me! Tommy shrugged. Eh, not exactly. Gabby's eyes widened in shock. You shot me, and I lived! I'm bulletproof! Tommy waved his hands quickly. No, 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 that was a blank. We just try that to see if any defensive powers will activate if you think you're in mortal danger. It's kind of a catch-all. That's why we try it last. What? Gabby was livid. All of those tests? For nothing? Yeah, Tommy shrugged. That's how it is most of the time. Well, go ahead and give your paperwork to the nurse outside. She'll sort you out. Gabby nodded morosely and stepped into the hallway, folder in hand. A big red rubber stamp emblazoned the word Mutation Unknown across the front of it. For some reason, those words seemed to encapsulate her entire life right now. She glumly slid the folder across the desk of the nurse station. The nurse gave a sympathetic smile. No powers, huh? Well, that's okay. My niece was the same way. The nurse opened the folder and shuffled through her papers and cocked her head at an odd angle. Hmm, this looks all in order. That can't be right. What can't be right? Gabby asked. You were tested by Tommy, right? He's always such a slob. But this folder's so neat. Everything in the folder is in the right order. It's neatly collated. Did you do all this? Gabby looked down at her hands in awe. I don't know. Did I? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I still like that one. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot more laughing last week when we read it. When it was fresh. Yes. It's all still right. good, though. I'm glad you like it. It's silly. I'm, I'm a silly writer. It's okay. Humor is good for the soul. It's what I got. All right, Robin. All right. Mine was short. <laughs> I thought this would be cool. Getting mutant powers is supposed to be cool. Well, it's kind of cool. Please don't try to make me feel better, Mom. This is embarrassing enough as it is. No, really. We always knew you were special, Margaret. Like a unique... If you say Snowflake, I swear to God I will jump out a window. I am not even kidding. Well, at least your drinks will never be warm, right? My mother reached over the table, clearly intending to take the cup from my hand, which had spontaneously filled with ice cubes at my touch. Yeah, my little brother drawled. Now she's almost as useful as the fridge. The pitch of his squeal when I dumped my mutant-powered chilled drink over his head was almost enough to mollify me. Almost. Little brothers, man. Little brothers. <laughs> I like that one, too. Yeah, I like both of those. Short and sweet. 
Much like this podcast will be after editing. <laughs> That's the hope. All right, Matt, where can we find more of your work? You can find more of my work at www.border-ks.com. And you can find my story at leylinescomic.com. And if you're more interested in what Corey and I do, you can go to mocopress.com. And if you would like to continue supporting the journey, please go to patreon.com slash mocopress to become a backer. Right now we're $9 away from our next milestone goal, which would be really helpful if we could hit that. So please take a look at it, and if you like what we do, support us there. Thanks so much for listening, and good luck on your own storytelling journey. for this episode was created by Reasoner. You can find more of his work at reasoner.newgrounds.com. <laughs>